Well, good morning. All right. Well, um, Dave didn't have to worry about ending the party. That was the, uh, the party just continued right through there. So um, excited to be with you guys this morning and uh, to learn and worship together. And um, we are um, in John chapter 14. And uh, this, again, this teaching of Jesus is from John 14 through about 17 is, is so intense. It's there's so much, just so much woven into every line and every sentence. And, and so the, the, the danger is that as we, as we kind of deconstruct every little part of this, we just have to be wary um, of making sure that we don't miss the overarching, um, kind of the whole narrative at the same time. And so in the future, we'll be looking back and reading through more of it. And uh, Paul will be preaching next week, and he usually does some of that too as well. And, uh, but I would really encourage you to make sure you are reading through the book of John as we continue to study through John so that it, we don't get trapped in these little micro sections of it, but instead that we're also, not one or the other, that we're getting the trees and the forest all, um, all together. So this is really exciting stuff, and it's amazing what Jesus is teaching us in the midst of this. And um, it's also significant to notice how Jesus engages the Hebrew Scripture just kind of constantly through his teaching. Um, and so it teaches us a lot about how we're supposed to engage with some of that stuff as well um, as we look at this. So um, there's, a, there's a lot here today. We're starting and we're picking up in verse 20, kind of where we wrapped up last time. We said that would be our kind of pivotal verse, and it is. In that day, so Jesus is speaking to his 11 um, in the upper room, and uh, this is deering or uh, maybe as they're wrapping up Passover. And so we had at 8.40 today-ish, we had our, um, our communion service again and which we will do basically every Sunday morning, uh, except for the Sunday mornings that we're doing baptism. So if that's part of your tradition, or if that just sounds like a great way for you to start Sunday morning, um, you could join us at about 8.40 for that. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's awesome. And this is what's going on. This is in the midst of what's going on, um, is this, is, is the, the original Passover, which became the, what we call the Lord's Supper, or, or communion, or Eucharist, became that. That's what's going on here. And Jesus, in the midst of that, is teaching them, is explaining these things to them, and has been for a while, to comfort them. In those days, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Talked about how, the, how fantastic that, that concept was last week. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So here you have someone, Jesus is referencing someone who has my commandments and keeps them. Therein is the main distinction for many of us in the church, right? Um, especially if you've grown up in the church. You know what the truth is. We know what the truth is. Um, that's impressive enough. That's great. It's good that we know and keeps them. And so Jesus is making a very clear delineation between someone who would only know them um, versus someone who would know them, who would have them, and would keep them. And, and keep here is a really cool word. We're going to talk about this. And keeping them. Um, I will keep, but let me keep going. Um, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So keep them. To watch over them is the idea of keeping in order to protect Another word that we might put here would be, and to guard them, to keep watch over them, to observe them, um, to keep them in our eyes. 
or, or maybe perhaps even for those of you who, um, who know the, the more general scripture, to hide them in our heart. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now this is definitely one of those where, the, where the, any translation other than the King James, if you grew up in church, you kind of lose it there, right? Um, very, very much so, your word I have hidden in my heart. I, have, I kept it there, I have put it there, I keep watch on it, I, I, um, I make sure that it doesn't get wander off, that I don't lose track of it, etc. Now, here's a question for you. If the word here is to watch it, is to guard it, is to protect it, that we keep his commands, that we guard his teaching, that we, etc. So protect it, guard it from what? So this would be a little group participation time. Protect it or guard it from what? What are we guarding God's, the commands of Jesus Christ, the teachings of Christ, what are we guarding them from? Okay, ourselves. Yeah, we'll come back to that one. What else? What are we protecting it from? Okay, false teaching. Distortion. Did you say evil? The evil one, right? Exactly. Good. Okay, what the world says. Isn't it interesting? This is one of our jobs. The one that struck me, the, the, what struck me was that the main thing I needed to protect God's word from was my own preferences or from myself. That's the main, in my life, the main danger that God's word faces in my life is me is my tendency to want God's word to say what I want it to say, whether it's what I grew up with, or it's what I'm most comfortable with, or it's what I was taught as a kid, or it's what I was taught in church, or pick it, or just, I just don't want to change. I don't want to have to adjust my thinking. Um, I don't want to have to obey something. Um, in our staff meeting every week, one of the things that we do is, uh, at the end of the meeting, um, we have someone uh, we start a stopwatch as someone has about 10 minutes and they answer a question. And so we've been doing it long enough. We've had numerous questions. The most recent question was favorite scriptural passage, favorite scripture passage. And, uh, and so the, the person has like 10 minutes to share what's their favorite scripture passage. And this has been really intriguing to see different people's scripture passages and the one that comes to mind in the midst of this. And the one before that was favorite song. And uh, that, that just about sunk John Redfern. I mean, he was... He was like going through like nine different ones going, it's, this is important, but it's not, I, I'll confess I did that too. But it was like, this is important, but it's not the main one. And this one's, but it's not the main one. And this one is, but that's not the real one. And so it's, 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 it's hard to do when you take something like favorite scripture passage. I mean, what are, you, what are you going to teach, right? What are you going to talk through? So people talked about the ones that impacted them, especially guys in childhood and during adolescence. Um, for me, mine was during adolescence was when that passage, when the passage that was given to me there. Well, this week was Elizabeth Smith's, or, or last week was Elizabeth Smith's, and, uh, and she was recalling back to Romans 12 was the one that st stood out to her that she remembered from being taught very early on, the passage from Romans 12. By the way, Elizabeth um, has now been with us at South Spring for seven years um, as of this week. Isn't that cool? I don't know. She's probably not in here. I think by Jewish law, that means we have to set her free this year. Is this the year that we have to set her free, Paul? We have to figure out, is that the seventh or the year after? I don't know. But um, it's, yeah, it's right, they're right. So, um, uh, and hers, so listen to Romans 12, 1. If, if you have any question as to whether or not we are allowed to, as Christians, to serve our own preferences, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, what a, what a fascinating concept that us as Christians, that, that in, in an era of debate over whose body this is, that, that Scripture has already spoken to this, that the Christ follower sacrifices our body and our rights over our body to God. It is, a, it is a part of our living sacrifice. It's one that it makes sense. It's the right thing for us to do. Our preferences don't get to rule. We know his commands. We know his teachings. And the question usually is whether or not we're willing to follow them. What does he teach about these things? He continues in this little passage. It's fascinating. I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who knows and keeps my commandments loves me. And the one who loves me is loved by my Father, and I love him. And then you get this phrase, and, and he made manifest and manifest me to him. So I think it's our natural temptation to want to create a little diagram of who loves who and in what order and, and all that kind of stuff. Keep in mind that if there is any question of that, John wrote a letter clarifying he loved us first. So if you have any question in your mind... This isn't John in any way making their prioritization of our love. Our love didn't come first. Our love doesn't come best. None of that. It's that Christ loves us, even when we still were enemies, right? According to Apostle Paul, he loved us anyway. So this idea of manifest me to him is clearly what's very significant here. The unity and intimacy connected in this language intrigues me. Um, intimacy is the process um, and, and I'm really trying to study and learn more and more about this so I can teach on this correctly, but I've come to the opinion that intimacy is essentially just two intelligences, two minds, two people exploring one another's identity. And so when I'm exploring your identity, that's intimacy. When you're guiding me to know you, that's intimacy. When, when, you're, when I'm guiding you to know me, that's intimacy, and we use intimacy as a euphemism for sex, and that's not appropriate. Um, that is a form of intimacy, obviously, when you use that definition. There would be such a thing as sexual intimacy. But intimacy transcends just sexuality by a lot. Um, it really is. You can have many intimate relationships that have none of that involved. And in fact, those are what we really need. We need intimate relationships. We need intimate friendships. We need intimate family relationships. Um, how sad that the world has cheapened that to the point of saying the real the real right we have and the thing we really, really need is sexual relationships when, when that's just that's kind of a pathetic thing to fight for, to be perfectly honest. It's this idea of intimacy, of, the, of knowing and being known, of, of understanding and being understood. This is, this is real power. And, and so to be able to say, how do we engage in that? Well, understand, here's one of the things that blows me away about the God revealed to us in Scripture is that he desires and creates an intimate relationship with us, his creation. Now, if you've grown up in church, you may want to go, well, sure. Yeah, do you understand, have any idea how weird that is? There is no other God like that. This is a strange thing. It's, it's a weird thing that you would have a God who transcends, who's extraordinary, and who desires an intimate, he wants to know us and be known by him. And for us to know him and for him to be known by us. How weird is that? God wants to walk us around his identity exploring him. That's part of what he wants from us. Why? 
I mean, intimacy offers a lot of risk. And this is, here's what's wild. And, and so when I, when I met Ginger and we get to know each other or when, when I have a child and we start getting to know each other or when I make a new friend and we begin to know each other and, and the intimacy begins to grow as we know each other more and more and what we face and our challenges and, the, and the et cetera, understand that that's a risk. It's a risk because things are not gonna work out the way they're supposed to. They never do. And God, who knows us perfectly, God's knowledge of us is already perfectly intimate and he still wants us even though he knows us. This is powerful language, the idea of of knowing me, being in me, and me being in you, making myself manifest. Now, there is a simple part of this language that that I think any of us, especially who have kids, will understand. When Jesus is saying, if you love me, the Father will love you. I mean, that's, well, yeah, right? Have you ever invested in somebody's child? Have you ever had a really deep impact in someone's child? that you've really impacted their child, even if they don't know you, if a positive, presumably, a positive impact on it, you're a teacher, you're a coach, you're a, you're, you lead a children's, you teach a children's class, you, you invest them, you disciple young people, you whatever. Man, once you have greatly impacted someone's child, you own them, right? I mean, what won't they do for you at that point? That's been my experience. When you, when you deeply impact someone's child, when you change someone's child's life for the better, all you have to do at that point is ask, and it's yours. There's, there's, it's, this is, of course, that's the case. And so, of course, Jesus is, is clarifying that. Hey, if you love me and you obey me, the Father's gonna be really, really happy about you. You love me well. And by the way, I think there's a little bit of the and the corollary is also unfortunately true. If you don't love me, if you don't listen to me, if you don't obey me, your conversations with the Father are not going to be fun ones. Um, I remember the rage. I'm, I'm not a generally angry person. I don't get angry very often. I can actually count going back in like, like five, last five or ten years how many times I feel like I've gotten actually angry. And uh, one of them was when Mark was about seven years old and he went to sit down at a table of nine-year-olds, and they all told him, no, because you're just seven. And I nearly kicked the table over. I mean, it was a, an act of perfect, like of total self-control, not to just thrash a table full of nine-year-olds. Because that's what I wanted to do. Who do you think you are talking to my son? I mean, it's like, I don't, like, okay, call, breathe, calm I'll just, I'll just take my son and do something special with him and reward him for the fact that these loser kids are, like it's, man, you, you're hard on my kids and that's just, it just I, think, I think we see this being played out. But again, I just say, notice the intimacy of that relationship. You mean God the Father is somehow impacted by how I love his son? Why would God the Father open himself up to that with me? Why would he even make that a thing? It's, it's shocking, the intimacy of this language. This, this, what is the God? By the way, John only uses this word here in, in the book of John. This special word, he's, he's used the word show, which is another word. He's, he's talked about revealing and seeing and all these different things. And, and I don't even know, we've dug into it. A few of us have really looked at this this week. Why is it there? It isn't super clear, but the language is connecting to a kind of, of an experience of this person. 
be, Jesus being in relationship here. This is, this is only those who can accept the scandalous love of Jesus through the breath of the Spirit. Again, one guy said that there seems to be something about this word that implies the, the breath of the Spirit. That those who can, who can accept the scandalous love of Jesus through the breath of the Spirit, that who can sacrifice for him, this is more personal maybe than other words. Paul's, Paul, uh, our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, Paul said that he thinks, and maybe it has to do with the actual presence of the messenger, that it's not you're just being sent a message, it's that the messenger with the message is here now engaging with you in the, in the midst of it. Jesus going, I'm gonna manifest myself to you. By me manifesting myself to you, I mean me, the one who's right here. This is the message that I have through the power of the Spirit as you see it more completely. What struck me about it is no matter, all the different discussion in the midst of it, it was very clear. This, this word is intended to communicate. It is very personal, it is very real, and it is very present. I, I just thought that was really powerful in the midst of this, how intimate this passage is. Um, again, does he just, is he just talking about the fact that, listen, you're not gonna see me and then you are gonna, I, you're, I'm, you're gonna be made, I'm gonna make manifest to you because I'm gonna die and I'm gonna be resurrected and then you guys are gonna see me again. Maybe it's that simple. Remember in John 14, 19, he said, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also live. That probably is Jesus referencing the world won't see me because I'll be dead, but then you will see me because I'm resurrected. I'm going to come back and hang out some more. It could mean something spiritual, something preacher. This is, by the way, the preacher document, uh, the preacher commentaries all preferred this interpretation of it, naturally. Um, that this is a more sermon-based, like, like something spiritual here. There's a, there's a manifestation we're supposed to experience of him even in this day. Um, it's, it's hard to know for sure. And obviously, if you know me very well, you know that my, my preference is to say, or, or both. Maybe both are meant here. Jesus is referencing not only just, yes, you will see me after, and yes, you will be made, you will be made clear who I am forever. Especially given Philip's earlier request to have an experience like that of Moses with Yahweh. Here's what strikes me about this, this language. Um, be giving more thought to the idea of Philip asking, show us the Father. <clears throat> Exodus 33, 12 to 14 says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God, he, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I, I realize that as much as I, I want to like, kind of tease Philip for not getting what's going on here, I'm not sure I have achieved the level of Philip. Like, I think I'm still trailing behind him. Would I, and am I even asking for this? Show me the Father. Like, would you just show me the Father? That would be cool. I think, I'm, I think I'm intimidated by that. I think I'm scared of that. I think, like I talked about last week, I think sometimes I'm afraid of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. I think a lot of us are. Philip wanted to see. Judas wants him to be manifest. So Judas, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. This is John, right? He was gonna make clear if it's Judas Iscariot, the son of, right? That's not a, he's gonna pick on that. So he's gonna make clear. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, 
Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And he will, we, will, we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, traditionally, this Judas, the Judas not Iscariot, is considered to probably be the one called Thaddeus in other passages. Um, the Jewish people, like many cultures, have multiple names. Um, they change their names. They have nicknames and camp names and, and all kinds of stuff like that, right? Like, this is part of who they are, so don't be weirded out by that. It was common for them to do that stuff. Um, Matthew 10, um, 2 through 4. So in case you don't know, by the way, here's, here's our best list. The names of the twelve are first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. You can even hear the nicknames and stuff all mixed into that, right? Incidentally, it always struck me, I have to comment again, that here you have Matthew referring to himself as Matthew the tax collector. That gets me every time. Um, how how in, inspired he must have been that Jesus chose him, Matthew, the tax collector. Anyway, Philip wants to see, Judas wants to understand, he wants him to be manifest, um, and we will, so this, this language, and we will, this is Jesus, what Jesus just said a second ago, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Here's the thing that strikes me about this passage. It's, it's interesting how often we hear people talk about not experiencing God's presence or, or not being in the midst of it. And there's no magic, by the way, in Christianity, there's not some magic experience you're supposed to have. Each of us is different, so each of us experiences. If, if you're more relationally oriented, you will probably have, or more feelings oriented, you will probably experience more in regards to feelings of the presence of God. If you're more logically oriented, you will probably have more thoughts about God. That's not because God is one or the other, it's because we are typically one or the other, and God meets us where we are. So for some people, the, the idea of constantly walking in the presence of God is a very strong, like walking in the sunlight feel for them. And for some of us, it's, it's more of a rational conversation that we're having with ourselves and then hopefully with God as well in the midst of this. That's really not what's being talked about here. What I mean is someone who is not having the presence of God, to whom God is not manifest, that it's, there's no clarity there, that they don't feel like there's any sense of abiding. Here's something that I would say this passage would cause us to ask. Is there an obedience problem? Because notice that in this passage, John strongly connects the idea of obedience to Christ as the starting point that results in the manifestation of him. Now, I don't want to create a, a, a behavioral modification type of thing. That's not the, what I'm trying to work on here I just think it's a worthwhile question that if we say, wow, God's presence doesn't seem to be with me, not made manifest to me, I'm not experiencing him, well, maybe it's that the sin and our, the disobedience in our life is cauterizing our nerve endings to the point that we aren't feeling it, that we aren't experiencing it. It doesn't mean he's not there, but it's certainly very easy for us in our disobedience to not experience him. That broken relationship is so easy to create. We all have it. In all our relationships. This is, we have a crisis of faith, but it's really because of disobedience. We run into that all the time. Someone has a crisis of faith, and if you can figure out what sin it is that they don't want to walk away from, you'll uncover what the crisis of faith really is. It has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with the rationality of God. It's because there's something they don't want to stop doing or something they don't want to start doing. 
Here we have an intimate relationship with a God who wants to dwell with us and us with him. So here's a, a clever concept. Uh, I, rec I recommended the, the Bible project stuff to you guys. Um, they teach about this stuff really well, and this is, this is not new to them. This has been talked about for a long time. But there's a visible creation and an invisible creation. And we know that God created a, a spiritual creation, and he, and he created this, this physical creation. Historically, mankind has understood this distinction. There, there are these, you know, these worlds, this, the worlds of gods and demons and the world of man. Historically, where do those things overlap? What do we call the places where God and man overlap? Where the invisible and the visible overlap? You know what we call those? We call them temples. So that's, that's what a temple is meant to be, is a place where these things overlap. It's clearly what God was teaching through the design of his temple, is that there's a place here where these overlap, where we experience strongly. Listen to God portray this. The reason this is significant is, I want to go back and read that phrase again, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is temple language. Listen to God reveal and expand. This concept expands as God reveals more and more of his narrative with us, with this idea of a temple or a tabernacle. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This was the tabernacle. Leviticus 26, 11. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. That's kind of an interesting language, by the way. I'm going to live with you and I'm going to try really hard not to grow sick of you. That's kind of the language. It didn't always work out, by the way. Um, Ezekiel 37, 26 to 27, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and make my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is God talking about a new covenant that's coming, a new way in which those two things will overlap, where the temple will overlap. Or where the invisible and the visible, the spiritual and the physical will overlap. And then we have 1 Peter. Peter says it this way, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's not subtle temple language at all. That's clearly temple language. How about 1 Corinthians 3.16? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We, we, we want this. We, we want to create a religious. This is, this is why you will often hear Christians ref, reference the difference between religion and Christianity. It isn't that we aren't religious. We are. We have all kinds of religious things that we do, like communion, like preaching, like singing, all kinds of weird, strange things that we do that are outside of the norm, that we are bound to. That's what religion means, is bound to. That we are bound to these things in religion. But understand, Christianity as a religion fails. It is as a mere religion, it is absolutely worthless as a mere religion, as a series of, of spiritual or even uh, just, just behavioral type of activities, things. It fails. This is why we talk about the fact that what makes Christianity special in some ways is the nature of the relationship that is invested here. That's why we get language. So we want a conversion, and of course there is one, 
But what there is is like an introduction. Read this in Revelation 3.20. Think of this in temple term language and, and abiding language that we would then abide. We would live in community with God. So, so if, you, if you want to study the eightfold path of Buddhism, as, as poor the man who we call the Buddha, um, one of the most misunderstood men, men in history, poor guy, all these people who worship him as God when he directly denied being God, but, but that he created this eightfold path. Listen, you follow this path, and, and eventually maybe whoever God is will, will, maybe will begin to pay attention to you, or, or the five pillars of Islam in order to get Allah to pay attention to you, that if you, if you go to his temple, wherever it is, and pound on his door, and you, you convince him that you follow these rules, that maybe whoever this God is will welcome you in, and instead, in Christianity, one of the things that does make Christianity a unique perspective is this type of language of abiding with us. So you get this language in Revelation 3.20 as Jesus is, is confronting the churches of the time. Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This isn't simple conversion language. It often gets mistreated that way. This is abiding language. This is the, the language of someone who wants an intimate relationship with you. Notice, is this, I'm going I'm to come sit on a, just sit on a throne in your life. Again, that's a correct picture of Jesus in the throne of our life, which he, he is, by the way. You don't make, we've said that before, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life. That's, you can become aware of the fact that Jesus is Lord of your life or not, but I promise you, you don't crown him. He's, that's been done. Like that's, he is Lord of your life. Um, so, but here's what's wild. The Lord of your life comes and knocks in this abiding, listen, I want you to abide with me. I want an intimate relationship with you. I want to, I don't know another way to understand this than to go, look, listen, I want to come hang out. I want you to get to know me and I, I want to spend time with you and I, I want us to, to eat together. I want us to, to abide, I want us to hang out. This word abide is so weird for us, mostly because of the little bunny rabbit song. But the, this whole, that, that'll take a few of you a few seconds, but the, um, uh, th this idea of I wanna, I'm going to live here with you, I'm going to engage with you, I'm going to be part of your life and you part of my life. That's such a powerful, intimate picture. I don't, I don't even know how to paint it. Like I don't know a better way to do this. And then there's the second part of it. So the first part of his question of, of Judas not Iscariot's question is how, do you, how are you going to manifest with us? And the second part is not the world. Well, the church is about us learning together to grow in the identity that he has given us. Church is not an end. It's a means that the church, the gathering, is for us to grow in him. We are at the individual level his temple and therefore living stones of his temple. It's such, a, it's such a cool double picture. We are his temples and we stack together to make a temple. It's, it's, a, it's a cool concept. It's not the building. It's, we don't just count people who come so we can count success. Getting more people here is not success outside of the people who are here growing in relationship with the God who loves you so much that he came to do this. That's, that's the only measure of success. Now you see why it's so hard to measure success in a church. All the other headings can be like, yep, we tick, tick, yep, oh yeah, we've got all those, and we could still be totally failing. The question is, are, are we growing in the relationship? Are we understanding more and more what it means to abide, to live with this manifested son of God? So verse 24 is, is, seems to be Judas, not Iscariot, answering the second part of the question, why doesn't the world get it? Well, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. 
That's why the world doesn't experience me is because they don't love me and they don't listen to me. So guess what? What kind of marriage is that? Don't, don't answer. Some of you are like, I know exactly what that kind of marriage is like, right? No, someone who doesn't, someone, if you're married, you have an intimate relationship with somebody who doesn't love you and doesn't hear you, doesn't get to know you, doesn't listen to you. Well, guess what? You're not gonna get to know that person. You're not gonna be, that person will never be manifest to you. And, and that seems to be just, in my mind, this is totally pragmatic almost at this point. Like, of course not. How would you? If you don't love me, you not keep my words. It's an identity statement again. That's what's going on here. This is identity. But keep in mind, these are not my words, but the God that you have claimed to serve all along. These are the words of Almighty God, the Father. The, this, these are Yahweh. This is Elohim. This is the God who you have served. These are his words. As I recall, think about this. His most urgent and recent command so Jesus has been giving some instructions over the last few chapters, remember? His most urgent, his most recent, his most demanding command that he has given us in chapter 13 was what? Love one another. This is why this, is why this all works together. As we are able to grow in intimacy with one another and intimacy with him, those things are not in competition with each other. It's a beautiful picture when God looks down on Adam and sees that Adam is alone and says it's not good that Adam is alone, that God's solution for Adam being alone wasn't to come walk with him in the morning and evening. So God was used to walk, they would hang out, they would abide together in the garden. God himself, the creator of the universe and Adam would hang out every day apparently. And when, when it struck God, notice it struck God, not Adam. When it struck God that it wasn't good that Adam was alone, God's solution to Adam's lo alone problem wasn't just more time with God. God created a provision for some, another person for Adam to grow in intimacy with because that is part of God's plan. As for us to grow in understanding of one another because we get to see the handiwork of the Lord in his creation, in his art. This is the picture that Jesus is creating for us. Listen, I want you to love each other. That's my instruction. Follow my instruction and you will also experience the manifestation of me to you through the power of the Spirit. Anyone who's tried to live this out, tell me this isn't true. It works this way. When we grow in intimacy with the people in our lives, when we grow with other Christians, when we grow in getting to know them better and understand them better and become friends with them and we grow with them in, in good relationships, healthy relationships, that strengthens our relationship with the Father. That strengthens our relationship with God and vice versa. There's an intertwining here that's really amazing. It isn't this or that. The staff will tell you, nothing, nothing triggers a lecture in me. I mean, there's a few words that do, but then there's a, the other triggers a lecture in me than false dichotomies. So we're reading a book or we're, we're watching a speaker or something like that, and they create this false dichotomy. No, no, it's not about, it's not about vertical relationships. It's about horizontal relationships. Dadgummit, no. It's about vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. That is the picture that God is creating here. It's not one or the other learning to live in this manifested life. Listen to this. And then we get this last line, and Paul will pick this up next time. What about us? His most urgent and recent command was loving enough to serve others at our own humiliation. 
Verse 25, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. Because see, he's, he's about to not be with them for a little while. These things, by the way, these things don't mean just the last three sentences. It doesn't mean we've talked about today. It means going all the way back. All the way back. These things, the start of this conversation about loving each other, about his father's house, about coming to get them, about the helper, about the unity with the father. He's giving them these things. This is, the, this is urgent. Not a lot of time left. I need to make sure you get these things, you download these things so that when I show back up and they all begin to come together and you really experience who I am. Here's what I want you to catch from today's sermon. This is God who wants an intimate relationship with you. A relationship in which you get to know him. He wants to walk you around the vast eternal aspect of who he is. That's why he calls on us to pray, to sing, to to worship and to learn and to get to know each other. All of these things invest in an intimate relationship with him. That's the challenge, that we get to know him better in all of these ways because he wants that type of relationship with us. No one does this. Gods don't do this type of thing. This is a special thing. So let's be grateful for that. Pray with me, please. Father, I don't even know fully how to communicate appreciation for who you are and the fact that you want to get to know us and that you love us. Father, just, just the thought that we would have the opportunity to be led by you to get to know who you are. Thank you, Lord, that as we learn more about you, it, it motivates us to worship and learn even more. God, we don't understand everything about you and that's not necessary. We have lots of questions, I do. But, but the answer to those questions in the end is knowing you more. More deeply. And experience the fact that you know me so deeply as you reveal things to me about me. God, I pray that you would help us as a church be a church that continues to get to know each other well and to love each other well and to be generous with each other well and hospitable with each other well. And I pray that these things would be lived out in our homes with our families, to inspire our kids and other people's kids to see that there is something different about this, that following you is different. I pray that people will know that we are your disciples by the way we love each other, our spouses, our friends, our family, our kids, one another. And in doing so, Lord, I pray that you would, in fact, through the power of your Spirit, according to your perfect knowledge and will, make manifest your son to us. And we ask this in his name, amen.